0: If you got a Bible, you can go ahead and start finding Hosea. We're going to be in chapters 7 through 10. Uh, That's right. We're going to be covering four chapters in a minor prophet on a Sunday morning because Frontline likes to party, right? It's going to be amazing. Hosea chapter 7 through 10. And uh, as we dive into this, I want to start with a confession. It's not really a confession if you know me. I love dystopian movies. If it's a movie about any form of apocalyptic future, I'm in I'm in, man, like from the really good ones, like Mad Max, The Road Warrior, to really bad ones, all the really terrible ones starring Kevin Costner, like Waterworld and The Postman. Uh, I'm in, man, like if it's a dystopian future, I want to see it, I want to read it, because it's fascinating. Um, I, I, love, I love thinking about survival scenarios, like in that future, would I eat my neighbor's cat, and, and the answer is like, I would eat my neighbor's cat, and I would eat my neighbor's cat even before my food ran out. <laughs> I, I know that the reality is that like a lot of you guys, I would probably be one of the first people to go in a dystopian future. I also know that my wife would be like Tina Turner in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome running Barter Town, <laughs> Right? I love those stories, man. They're fascinating, they're crazy, they're weird. I I even like The Walking Dead up to season three because after that, it got objectively terrible. And I know that that's a reality check for some of you. It's just bad, just stop watching. It went terrible, it jumped the shark. But I love those stories, I love those stories. And, And I think that it's fascinating when we think about the future and the present to have sort of these dark, ominous novels and books and pieces of science fiction that show us kind of the worst of humanity on display. But the thing I've been thinking about this week is what if the future for our city, what if the future for the West, at least the immediate future, what if it doesn't look like Mad Max? What if it looks like Midtown OKC? Like what if it looks like Midtown OKC? What if it looks like a whole lot of Whole Foods going in? $7 donuts. What if it looks like a lot of urban renewal and gentrification? What if it looks like, what if it looks like having every creaturely comfort imaginable at your disposal? What if it looks like the possibility of being able to build heaven on earth with great culture and great food and great music and beer gardens and lattes that you have to save money to purchase? Because I think in a lot of ways, what's happening in our church, at least in the immediate future, is a lot of renewal. It's urban renewal in Edmond downtown and in Moore and in downtown OKC. And I think the thing that's fascinating is when we think about dystopian futures, like if you've ever read Cormac McCarthy's The Road or if you've seen the movie, in those dystopian futures, the things that are dangerous and evil are really stark and obvious, right? Like in the road, you've got father and son and they're carrying the torch, whatever that is to you. Uh, Maybe that's virtue, maybe that's civilization, maybe that's faith, but you've got a father and a son in this really bleak future and they're clearly the good guys and you know they're the good guys because people are trying to eat them. You don't have to be like, I wonder who the bad guys are in the road. The bad guys are the people that want to eat your children. It's clear, But in this cultural moment that we live in, where we've got all kinds of comfort and all kinds of prosperity and all kinds of entertainment at our disposal, isn't it just possible that that brings its own set of profound dangers to our souls? And don't get me wrong, man, like there's things about urban rule that I'm really excited about. I want to have good culture in our city. I'm excited about good food. I'm excited about seeing parts of our city that have been dilapidated or buildings have been uninhabited get revived. Like there's beauty in that. But the thing that I want you to see today is that the profound danger is that when you have a pseudo utopia, when you have a pseudo utopia that we're building in this cultural moment, that sometimes what happens is not only that people miss out on the deeper meaning of life, but they don't even care about it. They're not even asking the questions about what makes a full life, what makes a deep life, what makes, what makes a beautiful life. And the thing that's crazy, man, is if we could be honest, existential angst or questions about meaning, what's the point of life? What makes a good life? What makes a deep life? What's true about life? What's beautiful about life? Those questions have a habit of popping up like moles in a really good lawn. And I think in our culture, what we do is a lot of our lives are kind of a game of like existential whack-a-mole. Where the deep questions pop up and we just hit them with a latte. Or we hit them with a trip to the mall or we hit them with more entertainment. Like, what's the point of meaning if you're just going to die? Netflix. And I think, I think in this cultural moment where things are really beautiful in the West and though there's a lot of fractures and things that are ugly, but in parts of our city like downtown OKC and Edmond and more, what can happen to us is that we can actually fall asleep at the wheel and we can be a lot like Julian Barnes who said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. We could have everything that the world says leads to a deep life, Like you can be shaping your body with your Pilates class and you can be building the perfect house and you can be experiencing fine culture and good food and good drink in beautiful places with beautiful people. And you can actually miss out on the reality that those things actually can't answer the deeper questions that your soul is asking. And what happens in Hosea chapter 10 is that God sketches out a picture of Israel that's a dystopian utopia. Israel in Hosea chapter 10 is this beautiful place full of beautiful people that's a veneer of loveliness that covers up a hollowness of soul. Israel in Hosea chapter 10 has every trapping of good civilization and culture that you could possibly want They've got religious structures and social structures and cultural structures, but the inside of it is just empty, man. Like there's dry rot on the inside. And even though it's beautiful on the outside, they've lost their soul. And I think for followers of Jesus, in this part of the world for followers of Jesus that wanna figure out what does a good life really look like? What's meaning really look like? What's mission to our city look like? What does working for the common good really look like? Is it more than just having another dog park in OKC? If we're gonna fight for the flourishing of people in our city, Hosea chapter seven through 10 is really, really essential. So we're gonna start in Hosea 10, we're gonna look at the end result and then we're gonna ask how they got there. Hosea chapter 10, starting in verse one, God says, Israel is like a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. And the more its fruit increased, the more they built altars. As his country improved, he improved his altars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt and the Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Here's what God's saying. Israel is at this profound tipping point around the eighth century BC where they're increasing in prosperity. They have relative political stability. They've got everything that you think would be required to have a beautiful civilization and a great city. And God says, you're hollow on the inside and a wind from the east known as Assyria is gonna wipe you out because you're void of the things that really matter. The more you're blessed, the more your heart runs after things that are not God. The more you prosper, the more you forget the weightier things of justice. The more you have stuff, the more you hope in that stuff and worship that stuff and go to that stuff as if that stuff can really answer the questions of what it means to live a life of significance. So the questions we want to ask today is how did they get there? How did they get there? Because if you're awake at all in this moment, Israel should sound like the church in the West. It should make you sit up a little bit. It should make you a little curious about how they got to a place of prosperity on the outside and poverty on the inside. So here we go. I wanna show you four things in this text. How did Israel become the shallow lands? How did they end up having a beautiful veneer and a soul that's hollow, four realities in this text. Number one, it started with slow and sexy syncretism. Slow and sexy syncretism. Syncretism is defined in Webster's Dictionary as the combination of different forms of belief or practice. Um, Here's what that means. Syncretism, as it relates to theology and the people of God, is when you try to make things that are incompatible with our faith Compatible with our faith. Syncretism is when you engage culture, but you lose the distinction of the gospel and you start to drink the Kool Aid of culture without discerning what's good and what's evil in the culture what was happening in Israel in the 8th century is that they were actually in this context where they were surrounded by nations that worshiped all kinds of other gods and practiced all kinds of injustice and all kinds of idolatry. And instead of Israel discerning what's good from what's evil in culture, they just drank all the cultural Kool-Aid in the land of Canaan. They just absorbed it into themselves. We see that in Hosea chapter 7, starting in verse 8. Look what it says. Ephraim, that's kind of code name for the northern tribes for Israel. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Weird metaphor. Strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face Yet they do not return to the Lord, their God, nor seek him for all of this. Here's what's happening in their cultural moment. There's all kinds of forces in the ancient world. And some of the things happening in the ancient world are not evil. They're just the result of human culture that are sort of neutral. Some of the things that were happening in the ancient world were actually good. There was technological advances, which are not evil. Those are good things to incorporate into the life of Israel. But without discerning good from evil, Israel, surrounded by the worship of Baal, is like, you know what? We should absorb the practices of Canaan into our religious life, into our cultural life. We should become like the people around us because that'll make life a whole lot easier. We won't stand out as weird and strange if we look like Canaan. So they try to reconcile things that are irreconcilable. They try to marry things together that aren't marriage material. They take a little Baal and a little Yahweh and put them together. Are you guys with me? Um, People that were followers of Yahweh end up marrying pagan people. The result being dad's got a mix of gods, mom's got a mix of gods, and the kids are raised in the culture where they're sort of scratching their heads, wondering which gods are real and who do we worship. And the end result is, well, let's just worship all of them. They've mixed with the people. Now here's the deal. Syncretism is really easy to spot retroactively. Like you can be an armchair theological critic, you can be an armchair historian, and you can look at other cultural moments and you can say to the church, it was really dumb that you drank that Kool-Aid in that moment. Right? Like you can look back on moments where you had Jesuit missionaries trying to reach different cultures and the end result was this weird hybrid of like Catholicism and voodoo. And it doesn't take a genius to say, hey, Jesus probably shouldn't mix with witch doctors. Like those things don't fit together, right? Or you can look back at more recent history on what happened in a lot of baby boomer churches where you had a little bit of Jesus and a whole lot of self-help pop psychology. Like, what's the church really about? Well, it's really about your best life. Now, thanks Joel Osteen for that nugget, (laughs) right? And so what starts to happen is in these churches, in these baby boomer churches, they were like, hey, pop psychology is about looking inside. It's about self-actualization. It's about you having the answers. And Christianity can be a part of a self-help plan for you to have your dream life and get a hot wife and have a sweet house and a nice car. And they mix together things that are not to be mixed together. Like the point of following Jesus is not getting a hot body. I mean, do you have any idea how profoundly worried I am about you that you looked at me and had to pause and think about that? The point of following Jesus is not having an easy life. It's not having your best life now. The point of following Jesus is that through his cross, there's redemption, there's freedom, and you get to bear a cross and actually suffer in this world in hopes of a better country that's to come for you. So we can look at other cultural moments and we could be like, man, that's crazy. Those things don't mix, but it's really hard. It's really hard to evaluate our cultural moment. It's really hard to know where is Frontline drinking the culture of OKC and Edmund and more. Where are we imbibing things in our culture that we should be rejecting in our culture? So let me name just a few things that I think are really toxic. In our cultural moment, truth is relative. You got your truth. I've got my truth kind of on the the tail end of postmodern thinking. Truth has been relativized. Individualism is the highest good. So everybody can kind of craft their own reality. And what's fascinating about the people of God is that we are the people of the book. God has revealed himself in scripture. He's, He's disclosed to us who he is and what he expects for us and from us. And we live in this cultural moment where It's like, hey, you know, I disagree with that part of the Bible, so I'll just redact it. There's not a week that goes by in our church where we don't have people that are like, I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. I'm a member of Frontline. And yet, these parts of clear teaching in Scripture don't line up with my values. They don't line up with what I love. They don't line up with what I want to do. So I just don't believe those parts of the Bible. And I'm not talking about obscure, like secondary doctrines, right? We're not talking about when is Jesus going to return? What's the date? Like, feel free to debate about that. We're talking about things that are not up for grabs. Like Jesus doesn't want joint custody with you and all your gods. Jesus is not like, okay, you can worship sex on Fridays and Saturdays. I get Sundays and then I'll just share you with materialism on Mondays and Tuesdays. The claims of Jesus for your life, for your soul, for your affections, those claims are zero-sum games. He wants all of you. He wants your heart. He wants your soul. In this cultural moment, like we've bought into the lie that sex is the highest good. And we're not anti-sex. The Bible's actually not anti-sex. The Bible's very much pro-sex in the right context. But in our cultural moment, we've bought into this lie that expressive individualism is the way that you actualize. And the best way to express your individualism is through having sex. So the idea that Jesus would call anybody to be celibate in our cultural moment is like, what? You mean Jesus wants to deprive me of the savior that I need to get out of my hell of loneliness. Jesus would take my savior from me. How dare he do that? So in our cultural moment, is it normal to be a Christian and practice sexual morals that are shaped by a culture that worships the God of sex? Well, that's the cultural moment that we're in. That's syncretism, syncretism. Like in this cultural moment, this is, going to be, this is going to be the moment where some of you are going to want to take notes for the angry email that you're going to send me tomorrow that I will promptly delete over a Coffee Slinger's Latte. Okay? <laughs> but let me just go ahead and go there. The far right political spectrum in our country is bonkers. The far left in the political spectrum in our country is bonkers. Bonkers. The identity politics that both sides play, the fear-mongering, the worship of self, like the anti-Christian doctrines of the far right and the anti-Christian doctrines of the far left are so pervasive in this cultural moment. And inside of our church, people are like, oh yeah, man, I'll just absorb all of that. I'll, I'll sit at the prophets of culture and the prophets of politics and I'll let the far right or the far left shape my values and my views. And when scripture doesn't line up with my politics, I'll just get really hacked off when Josh preaches on it. What is that? Syncretism. Syncretism. Now here's what's fascinating. Syncretism does two things in this text, two things. The first thing it does is it keeps you from getting the benefits of being a follower of God or the benefits of just being a hedonist in the culture. Like you don't get any good out of being a lukewarm syncretist. God says Ephraim is a cake, not turned. Isn't that a weird metaphor? What does he mean? Well, here's what he's saying. Syncretism leads to you being overcooked on one side and raw on the other. What God's saying to Israel is trying to have a little Baal and a little bit of Yahweh results in not getting the benefits of just being a Baal worshiping hedonist that can sleep with whoever you want nor the benefits of being a follower of Yahweh in covenant obedience, being formed by him and actually letting him create virtue in your life. You get the benefits of neither. You're like a really gross pancake. Like flip that mug because on one side you taste like lukewarm, chewy dough. That's gross. And on the other side, you're crunchy and burned and causing cancer. This is exactly what God talks about to New Testament Christians. Revelation chapter three, Jesus rebukes the Laodicean church. What does he say to him? You guys are lukewarm. You're lukewarm. You're half-stepping. You want Jesus and you want all your other gods at the same time. You want to absorb parts of culture that are toxic to your souls, that violate clear teachings of scripture. You're afraid of standing out in your age. You're afraid of persecution. You don't wanna be different than the world. And here's what God says to the Laodiceans. He's like, guys, you say you're rich and in need of nothing and well-clothed, but I say you're naked, you're poor, and you're impoverished. You're lukewarm. James puts it more offensively and starkly in James 4. Here's what he says. You adulterous people, exclamation point. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And some of you are thinking, well, I thought God loved the world. What about John three sixteen? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Look here, guys. God loves the people of this world. He loves the goodness of creation. He loves the forests and the trees and the mountains and the oceans. And more than anything, he loves the immortal image bearers that are human beings that live on this planet. But God is hostile and waging war with the part of this world that is constantly and repeatedly flipping him the middle finger. Our worship of stuff, our belittling of others, our rampant licentiousness where we think sex is the highest good. They're incompatible. God's like, those things don't fit they don't fit. Now, the second thing that happens with syncretism is not just that you don't get the benefit of culture or the gospel. And let me just back up and say, man, if if you're trying to do what happens to a lot of people in Hindu culture, where it's like, hey, Jesus sounds pretty great, and maybe he's God, and I need some of his benefits. He'll fit really well with my other gods. If you're trying to do that in a Western context, let me just say, Go ahead and just be a hedonist and have a good 20, 40 year run, have a lot of fun and just hope that the teachings of scripture are wrong and you're not going to stand before God. But don't half step it and get neither the benefits of Jesus nor the benefits of the world. Jesus wants all of you, man. He's going to be relentless in his pursuit of you. Jesus doesn't want to be your homeboy. He wants to be a friend that sticks closer than a brother but he's not your self-help guru. He's not like trying to get you all your dreams to come true in this life. He wants your soul. He wants your affections. He wants your obedience. He wants your allegiance. How do you know what Jesus wants us to do in terms of obedience? You read the book that he inspired. And when it disagrees with culture, you don't throw out the Bible. You throw out that nugget of culture that's really toxic to your soul. Second thing that happens is not only do you not get the benefit of culture or gospel, um, but this is really crazy. You get weaker and don't know it. So Israel thought that the more they mixed with Canaan, the stronger they would get as a nation. It's like, we'll have the strength of Yahweh and the strength of Baal. It'll be awesome. We'll kick butt. We'll build an empire. Nobody will be able to stop us. But here's what God says in chapter nine of, or excuse me, in verse nine of chapter seven, he says, strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. What is he talking about? What does he mean gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not? Well, here's what he's saying. As Israel mixed in parts of the culture that they should have rejected, they've become like a 40-year-old man that's trying to play a pickup football game at a picnic. What I mean is, you're 40 years old, and you're like, I used to be really quick. I can cut. I'll break some ankles out there on the field, show them what's up, and then you get out there and you start pretending like you're 20 and you will blow out your Achilles. You will go this direction, your knee will go this direction, cause you're 40. And don't get mad at me, I turn 40 next month, right? I turn 40 next month and 40 is terrible. And it really is, I'm not kidding, 40 is horrible. Here's why 40 is terrible you don't have the wisdom of being 60, and you don't have the strength of being 20. You just have the nothingness of 40. You just have the suck of being 40. It's like, I'm not wise. I'm not wise yet, and my bench press is terrible. And Where is this coming from? And that's what Israel, that's what Israel really looks like. God's saying, you're actually over the hill and you think you're in your prime. You thought that mixing Baal and Yahweh would make you stronger. It's made you weaker. It's made you weaker. Now listen, what's happened culturally is all the time, all the time the church is trying to absorb things in the culture that we should be rejecting, thinking that we'll get culture off of our back and we'll reach more people. This is what happened in the midst of the enlightenment, right? Um, in the enlightenment, rational thoughts blowing up, science is exploding, technology's on the rise. We're starting to think more deeply about the created world. Like we're starting to make all these advances in, in the sciences. And here's what, here's what Christians did. They were like, you know what? If we're gonna rescue Christianity in our culture, we're gonna have to take out all the weird stuff in the Bible all the supernatural, all the miracles, like rational people are not gonna believe in a bodily resurrection. If there's gonna be a Christianity in this cultural moment, we gotta save it from mysticism and from the supernatural and from the spiritual. And they took all the miraculous out of the Bible. They made it all mythology. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. He's just a picture of God vanquishing injustice here's what's crazy. Instead of making themselves stronger, they became like the 40-year-old at the picnic trying to play pickup football with the 20-year-olds. And if you don't believe me, go to any liberal denomination in the US, walk in on a Sunday morning, and instead of seeing vitality, the churches that have bought into that nonsense are dead and dying. You'll find like four people in there and they're super bummed out and they've got paid off buildings, but no life and nobody meeting Jesus because they thought they thought syncretism would make them stronger, but it made them weaker. In our cultural moment, everybody's like, man, how dare, how dare you tell people that Jesus wants lordship over their genitals? That's our cultural moment. We worship sex, man. How dare you tell me that Jesus would deprive me of a way to get out of the hell of loneliness by having sex with people that I'm not married to? And in the church, here's what's happening. Multiple churches are like, well, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Covenant marriage, eh, up for grabs. We'll relate to culture. And what God says when we do that is, look, you think that you're making pragmatic choices to not be persecuted or to reach more people or to be really flavorful to the culture, but you're really like a burned pancake. You're really like a 40-year-old guy that thinks he's in his prime. He's trying to max out his bench press at the Y and he's gonna blow out his shoulder you're dying. Second thing that happens to Israel is not just a sexy, slow syncretism, but this is a big one. The temporary displaces the eternal. The temporary displaces the eternal. Look at verse 14 of chapter seven. God says, they don't cry to me from the heart. They wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. Here's what God's saying. You don't long for me, Israel. You long for grain and for wine. And I think in the context of this whole book of the Bible, he's not just talking about the sin of drunkenness or gluttony. What he's really saying here is you don't really want God who is transcendent, eternal, immortal. You don't want a relationship with him that gives you your identity, your future, your hope, your security. What you really want is all the stuff in this world that claims to be able to give you satisfaction and meaning. You want to satiate your hungers. You want to live like a materialist. And I just got to be honest, man. It's so easy for me to aim my desire for meaning, my desire for eternity, my desire for identity at family and sex and career and entertainment and physical health It's so easy to do that, especially in places like Midtown OKC. There's so much beautiful stuff to occupy your attention and time. There's so much that's shiny. Ooh, a new dog park. Wow, another restaurant. That's beautiful. Praise be to God for Ludifying. I love it, it's so delicious. But what God's saying to Israel is the problem is not the stuff that I created. They're not evil. Family and food, that's not evil. Money's not evil in itself. Career's not evil in itself. But what God's saying is the reason that you end up in chapter 10 being a hollow shell surrounded by a beautiful veneer is that you think that material stuff can get to the deepest questions of your life and you're on a treadmill. It's going to kill you. This is our culture. This is our culture. The third thing that happens to Israel is they slide into functional atheism. They slide into functional atheism. Self-reliance equals functional atheism. Look what happens in chapter eight, starting in verse four. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. Verse 14, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities and it will devour her strongholds. Here's what God's saying. Um, You've replaced communion and relationship and obedience and dependence upon the living God, um, the one who brought you out of Egypt, you've traded all that for self-reliance that leads you to think that you can build, that you can build cities and palaces and temples and gods that are gonna be your security, your future and your hope. What God's saying to him is, you guys are trying to craft meaning You're trying to craft destiny. You're trying to craft identity with your own hands. That's functional atheism. We can be people that claim to be followers of Jesus that are like, but really what I gotta do is use my gold and my silver to build a palace, to build a temple, to build a life in which I can find meaning, meaning along this journey. I don't really want to depend on God. I'll put my hand to the plow and I'll do everything myself. Religious people do this all the time. I don't really need the grace of God. I don't really need the work of the spirit. I'll just be super disciplined and I'll depend on myself. It's functional atheism. What happens in their functional atheism is that Israel goes from Rocky one to Rocky three uh, and if you don't know what I mean, that means that you're not up on the Rocky saga, saga and you need to do some work. You need to do some Netflixing. Um, Rocky one is poverty and hunger and desperation. Rocky three is affluence, comfort and ease. And what happens in the journey of God's people is they go from being desperate and God's the only one that can get them out of bondage to being comfortable. And now they can rely on themselves to craft a life of meaning. And hey, listen, if that's not the danger for you and me and the American church, I don't know what is. Let me give you one more. I know you guys are like, awesome, give me one more. This is so fun. I love this. <laughs> this is great. Let me give you one more. Their slide into being the shallow lands lastly is solidified. It's, it's, the deal is sealed when they move from being individuals into individualism, individuals to individualism. Look at Hosea chapter 10, verse three. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? Now, listen, first of all, individualism in a Eastern honor shame culture looks different than the individualism of today. Our individualism is like, on steroids compared to theirs, right? But here, in essence, is what's happening. Being an individual is really beautiful. It's a God ordained gift. Um, human beings are not the Borg, right? And, and if you're not a nerd, the Borg is the Borg is the collective consciousness in Star Trek: The Next Generation. You're welcome for that. <laughs> human beings are not the Borg. We're not a collective. We're made for community. Yes, we're made for community. Yes. We're not gonna find the depth of life outside of spiritual friendships, outside of relationship with God and others. All that's true, but nonetheless, you have a self and God is the inventor of self. Being an individual is beautiful. Jesus came to die on the cross for individual people. He came to resurrect individuals. Having a personal individual relationship with Jesus is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's an essential thing. But what happened for Israel and what's happened for us on steroids is that they've moved from being individuals rightly ordered by God, where he is King and we are creation to being individualistic, where they start to think we don't need a King. I'm King. And we certainly don't need God. I'll be God. One of my good buddies has a four-year-old and the four-year-old summed it up really well. Cause four-year-olds are honest. They don't beat around the bush his four-year-old this week said, I want to be the king of God. (laughs) And that's why four-year-olds are awesome. They say the stuff that we think that we don't want to say. We want to be the king of God. Individualism, individualism is actually thinking that somehow you can sit on the throne of self-authorship. That you can create your own meaning, your own identity, I mean, we've gone so far. You can create your own gender, even if it's not connected to your biology. i like, I get, man, I get. That may make you mad that I would even reference that. People that deal with gender dysphoria, man, I got nothing but compassion and desire to be in relationship. But a culture, a culture that's so drunk, on individualism that we tell people not only can you self author all of your identity and all of your meaning, but you can even create your own gender. We have so jumped the rails. We have so jumped the rails in thinking that self is creator and self is God, that all of us are walking around looking inside of ourselves, trying to figure out who we are. And the whole time, what we're not realizing is that you didn't even create yourself. You can't name yourself. You didn't create yourself. You're not the author of yourself. What's happened to Israel that's so tragic, man, is they've gone from having this relationship with creator God who describes himself in this book of the Bible as their husband, as their father, this relationship of Loving, benevolent authority and authorship where he's shaping them and he's caring for them and he's honoring them. And now they're like, hey, you know what? We don't fear God. We don't need a king. Why? Because we'll do all that individually on our own. And man, like if you don't think that we have that problem, if you think that that's just out there in culture, you're drunk on yourself. Because it's weekly in our church, weekly hey, brother, you claim to be a follower of Jesus. You're to relate to women as sisters in the Lord with all purity. You're not to pray them. You're you're not allowed to take what's not yours. She's not your wife. Her body's not yours. Sexual purity is the command of scripture. Jesus, the King who has authority, who's not just your savior, but also your Lord has claims on you. You've been purchased with a price, brother. And the response is, well, man, like, It's my life. We do it with money. We do it with church. You want to see toxic individualism in the West? Just look at the state of the church, where the church is an exchange of religious goods and services, and none of us are accountable or belong anywhere. Got a long email. I love long emails, they're awesome because it's so much better than reading a book. (laughs) I got a really long email from a guy I really love and he's really been out of shape and he's been out of shape because he was a part of three different churches because he really liked the small group here and he really liked the preaching over here and he really liked the worship over there. And I said, hey man, like, Um, maybe what you need to do is instead of getting the benefit from all these churches as a consumer, maybe you need to sink down roots in one and be known and be pastored and be a contributor and take some responsibility to give back and to actually position yourself where there's a community around you that can, dare I say, tell you no about something. And his response is, how dare you? Why? Because individualism, has to lead to consumerism, to being a taker. Why? Because it's all about us. It's narcissistic self-love. And, and don't get me wrong. It's not, like, it's not like I'm up here saying, man, you guys better get that together. I'm glad that's not in my soul. I want to craft my own authorship, man. I, I handed Jesus in my new birth. I handed Jesus the throne of my life. And I'm constantly trying to push, kick him off of that thing. And that's a struggle of being a follower of Jesus. Growing in sanctification is it's constantly being overthrown by King Jesus. One of the greatest prayers ever prayed is, Jesus, when you and me disagree, let me lose. And the result of all of this slide in Israel, this syncretism that just absorbs culture because they don't want conflict. They don't want to be different. They don't want to be peculiar and unique. They want to be just like the world. Um, the, the rampant individualism, the slide into them thinking that they can actually replace the transcendent God with material stuff. All of that doesn't result in more beauty. It results in a really tragic, beautiful utopia. And I think that that's where we're at. So what do we do? Well, we need to come back again to sanity, to reality. And reality is not just a, it's not just a place. Reality is a person. <laughs> reality has a name. Jesus is the author of reality. Colossians says that he is, he is the one that created all things and all things were created through him and for him. He's, he's the author. He's reality. And what happens is we're all trying to live our own realities out and our realities are actually fantasy and it's killing us. And what we need is to come to our senses and come home to Jesus. What we need to realize is even when you want something desperately because you think it's going to fix you or save you or rescue you or comfort you, if it contradicts with the desire of Jesus for you, the end result of that is not going to be greater health and flourishing. It's going to be you being like Israel who might have everything, but on the inside, your soul is dead. So I love you so much. I'll do. I, I love you so much. I love you so much. I love this city so much. I so want Oklahoma City to thrive and flourish, but that's so much more than just having good restaurants. It's having people that are awakened to a higher reality, that are not trying to find the transcendent only in the imminent, the materialistic day-to-day stuff that we go to.